and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I bring you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, returning to the show, one of the best episodes ever was his first appearance. And dare I say, this one might top it. Chris Gethard is here. That's right. You may know him from comedy specials. You may know him from podcasting. You may know him from appearances on TV shows. You may know him as just public access. The guy's the guy is like a a renaissance person beyond reproach. But we will get to all that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned out of punk podcast at gmail.com. That is from my brother. But that didn't come out right. That's run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show and who doesn't want to support the show, you can do it by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you enjoy this podcast that we do each and every week. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all the people that do that. Very much appreciate it. You can also um, head over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and check out some of the stuff we do over there on Patreon as well. And a, a massive thank you to the people that do that. Really, you keep this show kind of going. We got to get some new gear coming up and uh, I wouldn't be able to do it without you. So thank you very much for all the support on that. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do, just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they help me cover the cost of some of the stuff around here, which is also very helpful. It allows me to do this thing, to do this thing, period. So thank you very much to Vans for that. All right. On, oh, I guess uh, check out Fucked Up's uh, You're the Horse. Yeah, check that thing out. And uh, check out, uh, just check, check, check out some stuff. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, Chris Gethard. Now, I first met Chris years ago when Fucked Up played on the Chris Gethard show, his incredible public access come network show, return to, anyway, it is one of the most innovative TV shows ever made, and and we talk about that in, in a second here. If you've never seen this thing, there have been some wild moments, some incredible appearances on there, and yeah, so I first met him on his TV show, but I was familiar with him because I'd seen him on things for a while before that, in appearances he made in TV series and things like that. But when I got to meet him and we made that connection over the mutual love of punk and, and a little bit of pro wrestling as well, I knew that this was, you know, someone I was going to remain in touch with for the rest of my life. And he has been, because that was like seven years ago now. And here we are all these years later. And Chris has gone from strength to strength. Beautiful Anonymous, his incredible podcast set like a, a new tone for the way podcasts should be done. It, it really is a spectacular thing. If you've never listened to that thing before, it will, it will, um, yeah, it, it will really touch you. Also, he has done comedy specials like Career Suicide and, and a brand new comedy special, in fact, called Half My Life. And this thing is hilarious. And as with everything that Chris does, also, really touching and really uh, heart-wrenching in a way, too. There's a uh, comedy record that's going to be coming out on June 4th, and as I say, this thing will be coming out on June 1st. you got to see this if you're a fan of punk rock. And once you hear this podcast, you'll you'll know why. you got to see it even more. He drives that point home on this thing. Uh, I've 
this has taken a long time to happen, and it should have happened way, way before this, because if you have not heard Chris's first appearance on this show, it's one of the best episodes of this podcast ever. It's one of the first 150, I think, way back when. So <laughs> go back and check out that episode first if you have not listened to it, and then listen to this one, because, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Remember, check out Half My Life coming out on June 1st on Apple and Amazon Prime. And there's also that comedy record, which will be dropping on June the 4th. And yeah, Chris Gethard, you know, like <laughs> one of the funniest people ever. One of my favorite guests. And, and that's about it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Chris Gethard Part 2 on Turned Out a Punk. All right, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Back on the show. It's, uh, I feel lucky to be here i got i got very excited when i found out this was happening well it's an honor and a privilege to have you back and i feel like you know as we we're just talking off air you're one of the first people to come on this podcast and it's it's so funny because like looking back on it now like we i went back and listened to the episode and we talk about egghead and john egghead has been on the show since then you know we talk about all these things you know that have you know come up you know, on this podcast since then and in our lives since then. So this is long overdue. That's, that's awesome. And I, I, uh, I feel like you got to experience firsthand, like what a charmer John is. Just oh, what the a, best. What an act, what a, what an absolute joy of a person. It's, it's amazing. Like sitting down and talking to him because like, you know, I'm like, okay, well, he's written, obviously, you know, a, a piece of theater about the Ramones and like, you know, he plays an egghead, but then sitting down with him and he starts talking about underdog and starts talking about all these like old New York hardcore shows that he also went to. It's like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Of course, he's from this world, like all the rest of us. It's it's so funny, too, because I think I think a lot of like the New York scene and, and you know, which I was in the that circle extended to North Jersey where I grew up. Like I think a lot of people sort of credit Egghead as kind of bringing pop punk back to New York in, a, in an era when there wasn't much. Mm-hmm. And Bowie has a lot of funny, you know, just, uh, just funny stories about like, yeah, try being like the pop punk band of guys in matching shirts on a hardcore matinee in New York <laughs> yeah. in the early nineties. Like, just like, oh God, when you put it like that, you guys are brave heroes. Well, that's the other thing that's really been fleshed out, um, kind of in the wake of you coming on the show as well. And you kind of brought it up first, um, as as but like how harrowing that era, the early nineties specifically, into the mid nineties, and obviously as well as include the late nineties, but like New York was and the scene in New York got like, you know, it's it's we, we, we've had a lot of people come on and uh, it, talk about this thing, like the Murder Junkies gang, like the after Gigi died. And you actually talked about the Murder Junkies riot when you were on the show and the wrestling riot. Yeah, but my the, brother was there for that. Yeah, but the, the, the fact that like after Gigi died, there's like this sort of like gang without a king that's just marauding around the Lower East Side fucking with people. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it was, you know, we were raised that that generation of, of people who were kids in the eighties and nineties, like I've been thinking a lot lately. And I think now that I have a son, I sit there, I go, man, we were constantly told that there were kidnappers everywhere 
and Satanists were going to get you. And there were like sex cults that wanted to grab kids. And like, we were all just kind of taught to be scared and have our guard up. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a lot of that of just like this manufactured toughness. Cause you felt like you had to watch your own back and some of the things, I don't know if we talked about this last time I was on, did I mention that my, uh, my uh, whole bunch of my friends were at a very infamous show in New Jersey, an Earth Crisis show. Um, I think we did talk about that the 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 yogurt bombing Earth the Crisis yogurt show. bomb. Which uh, since we talked, uh, I had not seen it before that, but there's footage of that show that showed up on YouTube, and it's uh, it's pretty insane. It's pretty insane. Yeah, like it's it's something else that's come up on this show, and it's just like, and it's once again being a parent and just be, being like, oh my god, would I not want my kid to deal with this? But like, just the idea of the you go to a show, and you're just like, well, someone might beat me up. Like, it's just like this is a reality that I might get punched. Yeah. Um, here, and I feel like obviously that's something that's real, but I I feel like also. At the same time, the way we kind of monitor ourselves and the way we are monitored as well, I don't know if it's really as pervasive a threat now. But I, once again, I'm not a kid, so I don't know what kids are dealing are dealing I get, with. I get the sense that it's like, um, at least be, you know, so many of the DIY spaces in in New York have closed since last we talked. But that scene really embraced me as kind of their comedian, and it was it was really cool. It was really, really cool. And I think my old public access show, we'd have all those bands on and it was just such a good um, creative relationship between between our show and them. And I get the sense from those spaces that it's just so much more based on like a an assumption of acceptance and, and sort of championing of creativity. And I, I, I just get the sense that probably people who are in the thick of it running spaces now discovering it going to shows like spend a lot less time worrying about like what oh that guy has a shaved head what color are his shoelaces you know i bet they were just not worried about that as much as we were i i think you're right i think it's a lot more policed in and i mean that in a positive way i don't mean that in, 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 in the negative mm -hmm. way i should maybe pick a different word but like regulated i guess is a better word um than it was back then like i think shit that was tolerated uh would not be tolerated now in the same way like in terms of bullying and just you know macho stuff like it just feels like it's a feels like punk's a lot more like it talks about being now i think so and i wonder i you have to remind me i i, I should have re-listened to our old episode i apologize i didn't did I tell you about when I saw, I think, I think this was after I was on the podcast, you guys played the Warsaw in Brooklyn. I think so. I think that was just after. I had an experience there when you just talked about like the bullying and, and, and we're talking about like safety at shows. I had one of the most amazing moments of my life, like an, an actual sort of miracle that I would say it's never happened to before or again. I was watching you. And first of all, fantastic show. Oh, <laughs> this doesn't need to be the idea of like you guys being great and you being one of the great showmans of, of, of punk is, is 
you know, it was the best. Well, that means a lot coming from you, honestly. As I've told you before, I'm a huge fan of thank you. you. Know, and you've done a Thank lot you. more since we talked last time too. Oh um, yeah. If so, but I'm like a fan of everything you do. So that Thanks. that really Thanks. does carry a lot of weight with me. I'm at the show. I'm loving it. And there's a pit and that's great. And there's a few, just, you could tell a few of these old, like they were older and a few of these old school New York guys who like went to hardcore shows and, you know, they didn't come up in this generation where things are kind of like regulated and, and more sort of gentle and positive. And they were sort of slamming into some people. And I'm like, oh, first of all, I'm at a show. So it's cool. I know what I'm getting into and I know that I can move and it's in that. But then there were these two guys who were clearly kind of getting off on it, like flinging each other into people and, and uh, linking arms and like catching momentum. And I was watching them go, okay, these two guys look like they're like looking for trouble. And I was dating the woman who's now my wife, Hallie Bullet, who punk fans may know as the, you know, uh, you know, Hallie Unlovable, Behind the Unlovables, a great band who I was a fan of before I ever met her. And yes, absolutely. She, she at the time had an injured back and I was very, very protective of her. And these guys, I could just see, I got in front of her and I'm like, these guys are aiming for people. And if they come near her, it could really hurt her. And eventually they did. They came careening in our direction. And dude, I, like me, these guys came careening at me and I call, I grabbed them each by the shirt with one hand, like one left hand, one right hand. And I'm a small guy for anybody who hasn't seen me out there. Like I'm a small person. I'm not a big person. These guys were both bigger than me. And I just grabbed them and pushed back with a force I've never summoned before or since. <laughs> and they both hit the floor and like slid, like slid a few feet. And I remember that everyone who'd been watching these guys, who was kind of in the circle around the pit, sort of just like turning to me with this pure confusion on their faces. And I was like, wow, like I must really be in love with Hallie because I just summoned a strength I've never had before to protect her. <laughs> and I, I've, I don't know, I, I will say like few times in my life where I've kind of felt that tough. It's cool. Uh I think everyone in the pit was like, yo, don't fuck with the dude from the office. He will yeah. fuck you up. He will yeah. That, that guy who had a very small part on uh, on the special edition of the Ghostbusters relaunch will <laughs> stomp your ass. Dude, you uh, you definitely... Um, no, I think that that's... I don't know. Like, if, It's weird when you're playing a show because you want that show to be crazy. Like, I was watching this video of this band have heart playing. Um, and it was, it's gotta be one of the wildest shows I've ever seen in my life. And it's like, cause it's just like 3000, like, I don't know, 5,000 kids. I don't know how many thousands of kids, but it's just like waves of kids crashing on the stage oh, and things so like cool. that, you know, and it looks amazing. But then at the time you're thinking like when you're on stage, it's like, Oh, that's also kind of anxiety inducing. Cause you're like, <laughs> no one gets fucking hurt. I can imagine, you know, I can imagine that there's, there's gotta be times where you're up on like one thing I don't have to deal with as a comedian is you like look out there and you're going, Oh, like, I hope, I hope this doesn't get out of control. Yeah. But then on a certain sense, obviously as a performer, there's a certain way it can get out of control, which is the biggest 
dopamine rush you could ask for, right? As long as it happens the right way. Um, so I, I would imagine it has to be a real balancing act for for you as a performer in that situation. I think like now I can kind of get out of my head a little bit more on stage and enjoy it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I always wonder is it, if, if you're ever able to do that as a comedian where you can kind of just go into almost like a cruise control um, and just kind of like be in the moment and, and just sort of like, I don't know, I forget that the the uh, the wellness term for it, but like you get your super brain going and you're just doing everything at once and it's just all coming to you so naturally. I like, but when I'm, you know, but I'm not trying to remember the lyrics at that point. Like a lot of time, those lyrics that I'm singing aren't the lyrics that I'm actually supposed to be singing. Oh, that's so funny. But I like, and I wonder if I'd be able to do it if I was on stage doing like where I've got like a bit that I've got to kind of remember, you know, or a beats to a story that I'm trying to tell the story to the audience. There's, there's definitely a zone that you enter that it, that is just such a rewarding and, and kind of why it's addictive, even though comedy can be a, a, a kind of lonely pursuit at times. It's like, I would say actually, at least in my experience, and I think other comedians might echo this is there's times where you enter a zone where you feel so emboldened to just abandon the bits and see what else happens and trust that you can come back to it and trust that you can kind of drop the plan mid sentence and you'll come back to it. Cause you're just so on top of things. And that, that is a very fun, that's when it feels like you're like playing super Mario and you grab the star, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, I, I really, uh, I really think I'm at my best when unexpected things happen. Like I, I never want hecklers. I don't wish hecklers upon me, but when they do happen, I tend to handle it really well because I just like chaos and my background from so many years, I was an improviser. And then, you know, that, that background kind of merged with the fact that I just had like, you know, so many years ago, the Gethard show, Jesus, 12 years ago, we started it. And it was like, I, I had a lot of aggression in me. I was still in my twenties and I had a lot of like, stuff I needed to get out and chaos really, really feels right to me. So I, I, I feel great when things go in that direction. And that's when I kind of feel like I hit that place you're talking about. Yeah. And that's, I guess like, well, that was the thing that was amazing about that show is that it was like, obviously it was a, a TV show there. So there was precision required, but at the same time, it did feel like, it, it was just so chaotic. Like being on that show was like the coolest TV. Not that we've had oodles of TV experience and like we definitely have brought chaos, but normally it's us bringing the chaos. It's not like a playground where chaos is kind of expected. Well, it was, it was so fun for us too. Cause that episode went so poorly comedically. And then, <laughs> and then you guys were there, which was a, a huge deal for us. And, and, uh, like really and 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 not blowing smoke like uh just like there's certain bands that would come through and play our show especially in the public access days when it was just a labor of love and they'd play it and actually clearly enjoy it and it it was so validating of like oh this is worth doing and to see the episode falling apart and then me just being like do you guys want to play a couple extra songs and then I'll never forget you like sprinting up the steps and I think shouting into a traffic cone, if I remember. And then all of a sudden our crowd who was so like, so willing to be swept up and stuff, I just turn around and there's like, 
like 11 dudes have ripped off their shirts and are just like, like cross that. Like they look like they have rabies because they're just giving into it. I was like, this is, it, it felt so good to be like, Oh, like every once in a while as a creative person, you find someone where your Venn diagrams mix and they cross over and it's like joy. It's just real joy. You know, like same thing with, um, you know, like you and I both love wrestling where it's like when I got yeah. to know Colt Cabana and I go, oh, like you think so similarly about wrestling as I do about comedy and and your place in it and the path you've walked and sort of how to be an outsider and still make a living and 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 cross over into the mainstream from time to time in a way that has integrity. I'm like, I never thought that me and a pro wrestler could have all this shared thing. But then, you know, I think about all these cultures and it's like, at the end of the day, we are kind of the, we're still like the carnival life people, you know? Well, I like, you know, it's funny. Cause like, since we did the last podcast, like wrestling, the landscape of wrestling, and obviously you did dark side of the ring after show. So, you know, this like has changed so much, you know, yeah. and it's, it's interesting to look at, I used to always say like Cole Cabana is kind of like the Fugazi of wrestling, but he's more almost like, the sex pistols and the clash to pro wrestling like he brought in this revolution that we're still seeing kind of flourish to this day like he's he's almost like the velvet underground or something to yeah to what he true. brought to the way people wrestle or like yeah. at least handle themselves as wrestlers it's so cool and i i think uh he really empowered the wrestlers themselves and yeah. like aew i think they I, i've read that that the, those founders give him a lot of credit um, as far as feeling like, oh, we can let's sell t-shirts and build what we want to build and and kind of start there. And Colt um really inspired me and and still does in, in a lot of ways. And he 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 and I had met, we had both been booked to perform in this weird um video some some company was making about wrestling that they were trying to sell. And we like talked and nice to each other, but didn't particularly like, it wasn't like we clicked then. And then he reached out to me years later and was like, Hey, like, I don't know if you remember me. And I did. And he's like, I, you, you had this sitcom go bad and now you're doing this public access thing. That's nuts. And he's like, I was in the WWE for a minute and got fired. And I'm doing something with my podcast and I think we're very similar people. Like he just reached out and put it on the table and we've been super close ever since. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's cool to see the attitude. I really love seeing, and I don't know that, I don't think Colt grew up like a, a punk fan, but no. he cer certainly stumbled into living with a lot of the ideals that music taught me that allowed me to keep my head above water. And he, he just kind of organically found those and to see it show up in other disciplines is just so, so cool. He like definitely strikes me and he denies this. What, like when I, when I've asked him about it, and I'm not like obviously close to him, like you are, but like, you know, I did ask him about the punk stuff and he's like, nah, it was never really my thing. I think he just is like one of those guys that if he had grown up in a different social circle, a thousand percent he would have been a punk or hardcore kid like oh uh, he i was just gonna say he's built like a hardcore kid <laughs> exactly <for sure>. like, <laughs> like 
has fun putting people on their ass and like he would have loved it it's just nobody gave him the right mixtape in high school that's it that's the only difference between him and me when it comes to that side of things yeah you just need that one you need someone to give you the band right like and everyone's got their band it's not like one band that's going to do it for everyone but like i do think there's a band out there for everyone and you just need to hear it and then it'll click well it's funny you say that and if I, I'm going to, I hope this doesn't come off as gross because I got this new special I made that I, I self-funded where I filmed it at 10 different venues and like showed the in-between. And for me, I remember bigger than, like I had friends giving me mixtapes and my brother's older friends were like taking me to shows and stuff. The thing that convinced me completely about punk and which this new special is like, Anybody who's seen it, I think, would la- will laugh when they see my special because I had a buddy tell me, okay, if you want to get what this is about, like, listen to all these songs we're giving you. But he was like, there's this little record store in Montclair, New Jersey called Let It Rock that for, I think, a lot of North Jersey kids of my generation, they go, that was the place where we all went for our records. Mm-hmm. And he's like, go to Let It Rock. There may sell copies of this VHS tape called Another State of Mind. And that will that will teach you everything you need to know and that that for me i think even more than any of the like music i was buying or being given that for me was the flashpoint of like holy shit this is this is cool like this is this is expressing something and uh that that was that was the mixtape that colt cabana should have received yeah that's the greatest road movie that's like there were the wizard of oz as one of the greatest road movies of all time I, I just rewatched. I've rewatched it a couple times in the course of like tr- making up my own like comedy road doc. Yeah, and doing your own other state of mind. Yeah, like really. I mean, I sent the director who came out on the on the road with me. I um sent it to her. I was like, please watch this because this I'm trying to rip this off, and <laughs> I really did. I was like, I just want to make a thing that's like a tribute to this. And there's so many sentences. I didn't. I probably haven't watched it in you know 20 years. And I, there were sentences where as the people were saying them, I was like finishing the sentence alongside them going like, man, I didn't even realize how much this was embedding in my DNA and like how much I wound up liking these bands and seeing like these people who I was sitting there trying to Google what happened to some of those people, like some of the random talking heads. There's this kid, Jim, that they keep interviewing. And everything he says in the course of that documentary, I'm sitting there going, I completely agree with that now. I remember my jaw dropping to hear someone express that when I first watched this thing. I wonder what happened to this guy. And I've tried to Google him so many times. I got I, I, If anybody out there knows where that guy is and what happened to him, he's just saying all that. He was the one, he's, he's just like, you know, everything about this life that I'm being asked to do presupposes I just want like 2.2 kids and a white picket fence and I'm ready to pick up where my parents left off. And I'm just not content with that. I'm just not okay with that being how I, and I'm sitting there like, oh my God, like that. When I was 14 and first watched this thing, that I walked away with that in my gut. Like I walked away with that in my gut of like, it's okay to not want that thing that everybody says you should. I was like, oh my God that movie well i like you know the thing that you know blows my mind is the if you watch the audio commentary track they talk about how the fact they they shot hours of footage they had like that truck 
full of footage and that stuff's all been lost but it's just like i would talk about wanting a snyder cut of anything could you imagine like a four and a half hour cut of that with all the other cities they kind of just gloss over i would love to see and and so a couple things i love to talk with you about another state of mind i'm actually realizing this is like a dream conversation for me (laughs) it's one of my favorite things and not everybody like knows that one as well um couple things is one i looked up the directors randomly and one of them has gone on to like write and direct he like wrote a bunch of episodes of in living color and a bunch of disney channel stuff whoa like (laughs) what what like (laughs) that guy like i forget which one it was but one of the directors when you look him up like he's making like kids tv and like very popular television has had a long career like that's cool yeah and then I've never heard the the director's commentary because I owned it on VHS and now I can watch it on the internet. But I got to get the DVD because I've read I've read that that director's co- commentary is is really kind of like harsh to Youth Brigade, and uh, I'm fascinated. I hear that the directors and the Social D people involved were just straight up like, <sighs> yeah, they were like kind of annoying the whole time, man. I was like. I think oh, there's wow. like two, and I remember there's two. There's like one that's just the Stern brothers, and then there's one I think that's director and Mike Ness, where Mike Ness is like super kind of reluctant to talk. But yeah, I remember <laughs> there being like a weird conflict. Like, you know, I remember that maybe it's the, I don't want to, I got to double check this um, with the Youth Brigade guys who, who have been on the show too uh, and, and talked a little bit about this, the, that tour and just, yeah, like, thank, thank the punk gods because they had the foresight to be like let's let's lug a camera crew along with us in another film truck because that is such an essential document for what touring was like and is still like like you know like i imagine uh, you're on the road recently and it's still the same yeah it's still got like and like it's certainly cushier in the modern day and having had some success and being a comedian where sometimes people like pay for the hotel rooms for me and like but still like the same self-questioning the same like way that you hit a breaking point when you can't find food you like and 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 somebody stiffs you on money and then you still have to be out on the road more days and you're sitting there feeling like so burned and, and what like am i doing this for yeah tired and worthless yeah. and it's like oh that never goes away and those guys felt it too and um i gotta i gotta hear that director's commentary i want to hear both because i i i'll tell you too man that that um the first album i ever bought on vinyl was uh sound and fury youth brigade right i think that's the name yep. and that song sync with california i would say is still still a song that i would put very high on my list of uh songs that have meant the most to me i feel like that band because you know and, and this is something that comes up on the show but bands that don't break up uh or don't ever really like legitimately truly go away tend to be not necessarily revered in the same sort of light so right, i think Youth brigade kind right. of suffers from this but they tell the whole story of fucking punk like they're have you ever heard their new wave band before they became youth brigade no they had this band called the extremes that I'm 90% that sure that was like kind of a mask band that would have played with the screamers. And it definitely has like a, a cold wave, dark wave kind of vibe, but also like a distinct kind of new wave vibe to it. <laughs> and uh, they're actually from Toronto originally. Right, right, right. 
and then they moved down there. But like, yeah, so they were like that band. Then they become Youth Brigade and kind of like help usher in hardcore. And then, you know, through the label and then they become the Brigade and <laughs> do a song with Jane Weedlin. I in... forgot when they became the Brigade. Yeah. Like, what is that like a copyright band? thing with the other? I think it was. No, I think they did it because they were going for it a little bit more. If I remember from those records, like or the, the vibe had changed a little bit and then they kind of did a comeback to Youth Brigade, almost like a, a kiss, uh, putting back on the makeup kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was uh, a big fan and, you know, all the uh, just thinking about it, like rewatching it and seeing Sean Stern be like, yeah, we're getting stiffed on money. We had to cut everybody's pay. The director's <laughs> like, what about unity, man? And he's like, you can't eat unity like <laughs> when you're hungry unity like and it's like so funny and that footage of the woman who wouldn't serve them in the restaurant let alone the, the those filming it's a miracle that they got footage of that minor threat show where they turned off the pa on them dude what a moment what I, a moment I, that's another thing that i was watching it and i go i had this idealized vision of a punk show in my head when I was a kid, you know, and I'm going to like basements in New Jersey and I had watched that documentary going, I hope I someday am at a show as cool as that. That yeah. was the coolest shit in the world. That footage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's like, there's certain moments that just like confirm like, yeah, like you're saying, like, why do I like this thing? And it's like, you watch that. Uh, that footage I was talking about, that band Have Heart playing, you know, and that's, it's even actually the, the one that really hits me all the time is your story about Toby, where uh, I still get a lump in my throat, <laughs> it's like talking about it even. Like, it's just like these moments where you're like, fuck, yeah, that's why I like punk. When the microphone goes out and everyone's singing for Ian, that's why I love this thing. Yeah, although I have to ask you, too, because, I mean... I can say this, whereas you are like a, a rational and, and, and humble person, but like y you have put on shows that have definitely been that show for many people. That's one of the things I love about your band is you're one of the bands where it's like, you know, every, every show is going to be a show that people walk away from going, I can't believe I saw that. And that, I don't think people realize too, like that takes a level of like mental and physical dedication it's so cool, but you're, you've given people that show. They, there are people in this world who point to you as like, that's the one that set the bar for me and I'm still chasing it and I want to see that again. That's cool, man. That's, yeah, that's very, thank you. Um, yeah, it's very humbling to kind of hear that. But, you know, there's also nights where it doesn't go, you know, and like- Oh, right, right, right. You know, and like, uh, I was funny, I was talking with a friend today and he's like, have you ever walked off stage? And I'm like, oh God, tons of times like dozens and dozens and dozens of times embarrassingly so where it's gone so badly that I just couldn't deal with it because I'm so addicted to the high of it going right that when it went really badly um I just if when it goes so fucking bad like so yeah. bad every once in a while it still does like stop me if I told this one did I tell you that my my bouncing soul story. I don't think so. It may, I think it happened since last time we talked to you. It was, it was, the, it's the best. It's the <laughs> best. And like in the moment, it's one of the, when I say 
People ask me, what's the worst show you've ever done? And I often cite this. It was one of the hardest experiences to live through, but it was so bad that even while it was happening, I understood, like I was giggling under my breath because I'm like, I will have this story forever. Um, Brooklyn Vegan organized this show and it was kind of like curated as a Jersey night in, in many ways. Not every band was Jersey, but it was headlined by the Bouncing Souls. And I, I think it was um, uh, uh, Brian Fallon played a solo set too. Okay. So they asked me to host it. Uh, Brooklyn Vegan was like has been very kind to me over the years, and they asked me to host it. And I'd done a bunch of stuff with them. And Music Hall of Williamsburg, for people who haven't been there, it's big space, big space, fits a lot of people. And I go there, and it's just you know I grew up there, and I love these people, but it was just Jersey Shore punks, and and that's a particular breed of Jersey punk that's like like a you know kind of like aggressive and everybody's wearing hoodies and sort of have that you know they come from the shore where it's like the locals only thing with shore a lot style shore style very familiar with it like <laughs> yes yeah. if, i think if you know it you know it exactly and, it's a different type were, of punk i'll tell you what they were not in the mood for that night was some guy talking and the first time I went out, they were like, okay, go warm them up. I think I had to do like between 10 and 15 minutes and then bring out the first band. And if I mentioned that I was from New Jersey or dropped references to Jersey, they'd like pay attention. And I got a couple <laughs> little pops off of like referencing, uh, you guys are probably Jersey Shore people. You probably know that uh, clown sign, that big clown outside the liquor store, Route 35. <laughs> and they'd be like, yeah. And then I'd be like, all right, finally, I have them. Let's do some jokes. And I'd go into my jokes and they would just start heckling. And I got booed off stage as I was introing the first band. I was being oh off stage. And the dude, I get off stage and I go, I'm like shaking a little bit because I don't care how long you do it. You, you're going to bomb and you're going to have nights that go awful as a comedian. Like there's still going to be at least, at least as you're walking off stage, you're going to be shaken up. There's no way around it. And then well, you know, you're not psychologically prepared for that kind no. of, uh, yeah. <laughs> and no matter how veteran you get, like you still have to shake that off. It might take you 30 seconds, but you, that's a tough 30 seconds. And it's longer than that for me. And I go back to the, the dressing room and I sit there, I go, Oh my God, there's four more bands that I have to <laughs> intro. And, and, I, I went out, dude, when I tell you I got booed off stage four times in a single night, I am not exaggerating because they made a game of it where I'd walk out <laughs> and they were like, didn't even give me a chance the next two times. And I became, I remember feeling like a, like such a pariah, like that band, um, really nice people. I Nico, um, they were Brooklyn men. They were like the only ones talking to me and the other bands, it felt like they didn't even want to like look me in the eye so as not to inherit the stink. They didn't like want the crowd to sense that I had even interacted with them so that they didn't inherit the suck that I was bringing that night. And the Bouncing Souls who, you know, they're like a very big band, but I mean, like I hadn't even said hello to them yet and it never happened. Like they, I did not even make eye contact with a member of the Bouncing Souls, and uh, it was it was uh, <laughs> what that really? That's, yeah, it was oh, hard. That's so brutal. See, I've only I I like their music, and growing up in Jersey, you know, they were and a New Brunswick guy, no less. Oh, like they, they're gods, yeah, gods, gods. You know, like Bill. I I think a lot of people would say they're probably the ones who busted open that whole New Brunswick scene. It's just like 
the lifetime, the earth, screaming females, like Jesus, you know, but I've only sadly had bad experiences with bouncing souls because I had that experience. And then when I was a, a kid, probably 16, I went to see them at the wetlands in New York and I was up front and the lead singer is definitely an accident, but I was right up on the edge of the stage and he was kind of like spazzing out with some of his moves and he accidentally kicked me in the face and broke my glasses in half. Oh. I've had very bad luck with the bounce of souls. Oh Extremely bad luck. Oh, that is, that is uh, brutal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, getting booed off stage four times, one night, like uh, that, that ride home was about as lonely as it gets, you know? About as lonely as you can feel. Yeah, so, especially the punk show too, because I imagine, I don't know, like not to put that on you, but I imagine that would feel almost like going into it, like, oh, this is a slam dunk. Like, it's not like playing to like a crowd that doesn't get it. Like, I got them in the palm of my hand out of the gate. Like, I would feel that way. Oh, let alone with the Jersey stuff. Like, <laughs> I'm like, Jersey knows. Like, I have... Like, I have an intense amount of love for my home state. Yes. And that's been on public record. Like, I'm like, this is Jersey Pogs. This is going to be a breeze, easy money. And instead, the hardest money I ever earned. <laughs> the the hardest money to, to the degree that I felt um, bad accepting it. And then, dude, Brooklyn Vegan stopped booking me for stuff. And well within his rights, because I had that. And then he booked me to host a uh, side stage at Lollapalooza one year in Chicago. And it was like a corporate sponsored stage for some car company and people were playing like unannounced sets on the side stage. So no one really even knew it. So very few people were showing up <laughs> and they had the stage built where there were like all these carnival games and cars kind of blocking any view. So people couldn't even walk by and notice something existed. And, uh, their whole thought was like in between bands, you'll do crowd work to keep the people hanging out as like the next bands are showing up. And of course, like the, I think Frightened Rabbit brought a crowd. Uh, they were great to see them that intimate, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Um, but like the whole crowd leaves. They want to go see other bands. Nobody's like, oh, and now this guy's going to come out and do crowd work. And I went to walk off stage and not Brooklyn Vegan, like the, the guy he hooked me up with who's coordinating it, like the corporate guy was like, why are you walking off stage? And I was like, well, nobody's here. I'll wait till people come back. I'll start it up again. He's like, no, the whole point is they'll see the comedian. They'll be like, Oh, we can hang out in between bands. I'm like, dude, like there's <laughs> what's he doing to crowd work to no one for 90 minutes. <laughs> oh I was adding it up throughout the day, like stretches of 20 straight minutes. There was one, there was a girl, one of the little carnival game booths they had set up was this girl in, um, doing like painting people's faces. You can get your face painted. And also arranged so horribly that no one could see she was there. Stretches where it was just me talking into a microphone with this, like literally going like, oh, where are you from? Oh, that's cool. I've been to that city. Uh, I ate at this restaurant. It was good. Is that like a place people like that? Like just having a conversation with one person into a microphone where, dude, I'm telling you, my friends, um, if, if anybody watched my old TV show, there was a guy who used to dress as a banana and he married <laughs> Bethany, who was one of my like cohorts on the show. And they were there at the festival watching bands that year. And they were like, oh, let's drop by and see how Geth's doing at the side stage. And they didn't say hello to me because while they were still like 20 or 30 yards away, 
they froze and <laughs> and um said it was too sad and they didn't want me to like be in my head that anyone who I knew saw it. And Bethany told me she cried. <laughs> Bethany told me she cried because like my career had like had some ups and then had some big downs and I was in the middle of some downs and she was someone who I had like leaned on and confided in about that. And she said, she just saw me doing crowd work to no one and started crying. I did oh. a, go a gig so bad that it made one of my best friends cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh i've never been in that exact position but i've been definitely booked at different things different events and it's like like i've cleared the room like i've booked, been booked to dj and literally washed the room of people like just everyone's it's, leaving on mass well it's it's funny i actually just did like um i was i, I did a, a a, a podcast with Jeff Rosenstock, who's like, just, just, he's, he's a good friend of mine. He's just so brilliant. And I kind of look to him for like ethics and, and like how to approach things in, in the modern day. I, I love him and I love his music. And I was actually saying to him, I was like, I have, I, I feel the great kinship when I watch the opening band on a show. Because the way that you can very often see just no one pay attention to the first of those four bands and they have to just get through the set. I, I feel a very strong um, like emotion. I, I share the emotion of that band. That to me, from what I've seen, seems like the closest bands would have to the the feeling I have when I bomb of yeah, you're the first band and no one's here to see you. And people are just sort of like aggressively not giving a shit in a way that doesn't even feel nice. Like it feels actually mean the way people are not paying attention. I identify with that. I, I also love it when a band turns the room and they hate them. You know, they just hate oh, this. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah. And because I've been there, you know, on stage and it's not necessarily the most pleasant thing to go through, but I love, like we took Kurt Vile on tour and people were heckling him and you'd just be like laughing right back at him like the whole time or psychedelic horseshit when we took them on tour it was kind of the same sort of vibe and i just like i don't know there's just something like i i i really admire that tenacity and that kind of toughness when you see someone bombing and just being like you know what fuck it you got to sit through this so <laughs> uh seeing the people who can have fun with it and then like one of my favorite things is the people who who sense a disaster give in to the disaster do more say sure fuck it i'll do more to turn you off and then a small segment of the people actually start to go oh this is actually awesome and i respect you because you're just pouring gasoline on the fire in a way that's actually pretty fascinating to watch that's that's fun too oh yeah that's definitely really fun have you ever done comedy in like germany on tour or like france or anything no, I really want to go. I really want to go to those scenes. I've done, um, as far as far, you know, obviously Canada and Canada is such a, you know, the Just for Laughs festival is like the big one. Like, yeah, it's the huge one. That's like so the, connected. Uh... But I've done, I've done uh, Ireland, Scotland, and England are the foreign countries where I've performed, and those are the, those are the easy ones. But I, I really want to go to germany in particular i've heard is so cool and there's like a whole 
I've heard there's weirdly um, like a whole circuit people do of Scandinavian countries. And a lot of the, my understanding, I might be wrong about this, but I've, I've heard a lot of English comics will go do this circuit where they hit up like Finland and Sweden and Norway and bounce around there. And I'm like, I would love to do that. Be amazing. Yeah. Well, I could definitely see that because like you go those places and, and English is obviously spoken. It's sorry. English is very, you know, it's very common how it's spoken there. And, and uh, it, it's, it, it, it also feels like sometimes when I'm on stage talking in the middle of the sets, especially in, in countries where it's not necessarily as spoken, um, I just find my materials just like, not that I'm doing comedy, but I mean, just even the stuff I'm saying is just not landing in the same sort of way. So I just wonder what it would be like to do comedy where it's just, it's so much about the stuff you're saying landing. Yeah. I, I really want to try it. Like, I, I wonder how you feel it. Um, I'm feeling like this pandemic, one of the small silver linings, and there there are not many, and they don't none of them make up for this horror show of a year and a half. But I feel like now is a time where and every artist has a chance to push the reset button on any aspect of their career they want that like you're not gonna get again. You know, like you'll get locked into your habits and your reputation never going to have another time where you can you know 18 months off so when you come back you can change things and i've i've really thought long and hard about how i want to do things differently moving forward and one of them is like i have this great job where i get to travel and and maybe if i go to luxembourg i'm not going to make much money but if i have the ability to do a show there i should go do it because it's a challenge and a beautiful thing and like, why wouldn't I? The only reason not to is because I wouldn't make as much money. And that's not a good enough reason. Um, so there, there's like a hand, there's like a, a checklist of things that I'm like, these will be the new standards for me moving forward. And and that's, that's one of them. It's like, go more places for the experience. Get back to that, you know? No, I, I feel 100%. Like, I, I want to come out of this thing better than I went in. And, you know, and like, be it the way I, I don't just every, I think I'm going to handle every experience differently because I feel like all of us, like you're saying, it's like a, a reset where we all got to experience for 18 months, what it would be like if we lived out this sort of like dark fantasy and quit and, and just like stayed home. Like, what would that be yeah. like? Which and I think about doing all same, the time. Same. Like I get depressed and I'm like, I should get a, I should get a nine to five. I'm, I'm so burnt and tired. Yeah. And I'm sitting in hotel rooms, just like, like sometimes literally crying, thinking about like, what am I doing with my life? And now just like, oh yeah, I can't wait to be back in a hotel room thinking about just like what I'm going to do that day, going out and just seeing the world. Like we're all Scrooge waking up. What day is it, sir? We're, like, we're all there now. 100%, 100%. And, and I, I just did my, I, I've in the past three weeks, I've started doing my first shows back doing some stand up sets. And I was really on the verge of quitting. There's a bunch of things happening within the comedy world that I, I find very tiresome. And then I've had some like sort of some like personal uh, th things happen with other comics that I, where I'm like, just tired of this. And then I get on stage and I'm able to do it again after all these months. And 
I was so shocked at how much I loved it because the thing, the thing that I, I forgot not having it and that if I'm being honest, probably also for many stretches have forgotten as I become complacent and take it for granted is it is not about me and it's not about my experience. It's about the crowd's experience. It's about, can I get somebody to laugh? And that's a good thing to let, you know, people like laughing and if you're having a really bad day and I can get you to laugh, that's, that makes me feel good and like it's worth doing. And I think I had really taken that for granted on some level and doing the, doing a show like first show back and to look out and see like, there's people right there. I'm seeing their faces. This is giving them something. I'm like, Oh, I, I doubt that I will forget this again because it got taken away. It's like, it's never about me. It's never about my experience on stage. When I, when I see comics who make it about their experience on stage, I always find myself put off by it. And I gotta, I gotta give something to someone who would pay money to see me. That's like, got, I've got to give everybody in the room something. And that's like, something that I'm very, very driven towards in a way that is um, probably more extreme than I've ever felt it. Yeah. I think, I think that's the thing that, you know, like, cause we go on there and you're the same way. Cause you're not, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're on stage persona in the same way that a lead singer has an on stage persona, but it's you, you know, from, from what I know you mm -hmm. to be as a person. So it's really like raw. You know, so when you're going up there and you're having a bad day as a person because you're going up there and trying to be human, like it almost feels like it'd be better to be a wrestler, to be Kiss or to be, you know, like uh, like an Andrew Dice Clay type thing where you're just putting on almost like a character to go out there, yeah. you know, and then you can just like then you can always make it about the audience because this character is just about serving the audience. Yeah. And you can kind of have your own guard up and feel a little protection and you can walk away from it when you need to and not be that person you know you andrew dice clay could probably like not put his hair up and go have a meal and have nobody bother him because they aren't sure if it's him like yeah. some distance there that's good but it's just i've always i've always thrown myself into it and been very very honest which has great joy and also so sometimes you can feel very exposed and that's when you wind up crying in a hotel room right <laughs> yeah. well i think that's the you know it's, and that's the hardcore and that's the punk side of things where you know leaving like you know and obviously there's always edifice you know like as much as the clash claimed they weren't a rock star band they were rock stars you know and like that's the contradiction within punk rock but it's always this idea of like you want to be as authentic as possible on stage. Like the last thing you want to be is, is like a fake. Yeah. It shines through instantly. It shines through instantly. And, and I have, I have like such, such allegiance to the, the bands that I always perceived as real um, to this day, to this day. Like I, I think a lot about, um, how much I still love Jay Church, mm. even though that they, they put out so much stuff and so much of it was great, but just you can't put out every song you ever write. Like there's going to be some flaws and, and, but it's Lance Han just, I, I was able to meet him 
and, and message him a couple times before he passed. And he was just such a genuine person that it's like, I will always feel fiercely devoted to this band. Are they the best band? No. Are they a little underrated in my opinion? Kind of forgotten? Yeah. But that guy was such the real deal. Everything he ever wrote that I read in his essays, his songs, his lyrics, I'm like, this dude seems like he's for real. And that, that, carries it so long yeah no he's definitely like i i you know sadly well not sadly sadly that he passed away but i mean i unfortunately for myself never got to meet him um but he's someone that my god like he, he was beck's guitarist you know like yeah yeah it's, it's like he uh he was just that person and everyone that came in touch with him seems to walk away by saying yeah like you're saying he was the real deal like this is one of those people that uh like you know they they're the reason you kind of like want to still be involved in this thing there's a lot of a lot of reasons to not want to be involved with punk and not be associated with punk but there's some people that you hear about or meet that just are like yeah that's why i'm that's why i'm in this thing now you know so much more than me and i i have to imagine speaking of him being beck's guitarist do you know the legend of the creep is back no oh this seems like a story you would love. So Lance had Honey Bear Records, which is like his own, you know, his own label where he did like small run stuff and just stuff he was interested in and like super, super small run stuff. And he did a seven inch series. And if I remember right, it was 100 copies of each seven inch. That's it. Never will be repressed. Two or three bands on each one. And he had toured with Beck and he put out a seven inch and Jay church has this song on it called the creep is back. And then the other band, there's two other bands on it on the B side. One of them, I forget. And the other one is listed as Mr. Hanson. Hanson. We, I, sorry, I do know the, the, yes, the, just from like, actually after you were on the episode, cause we did talk about Jay church Did we on footnotes, Chris O'Toole and I, we, we just nerd out about the episodes after the air. We, dug in to the J church discography and found this record, but go anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, please I, I apologize. Cut this out. If I, if, if it's no, we, we didn't talk about this last time. So get on, please go on. Well, so J church who I feel like anybody in the nineties would remember, like you couldn't go to a punk record store and not be yeah. like, why am I sifting through so many J church split seven inches? <laughs> like, do they just say yes to any band that wants to do a split? There's just too much J church floating around. And all of a sudden there's this one record that there's only 100 copies of. And Beck has apparently some very, very obsessive fans. So there's this <laughs> weirdly, this like one J church seven inch that it, when it goes up on eBay, like once in a blue moon, it'll go for a couple thousand bucks sometimes. Yeah. And it's yeah. impossible to get your hands on. And it, it, it's, it's a, uh, it's kind of this like weird thing that I think should be more legendary than it is. And I got this buddy named Fid who's like Jersey punk to the core, big part of New Brunswick for a long time. He's in a band called Hat Rabbits now that are, are very, very good. And uh, he, the, I think he was in the Measure essay, if I remember right. Okay. Uh, and he is an obsessive Jay Church fan who I, I wrote about this for the talk house because he has every single J Church release, which is hard to do. 
There are a lot of them. A lot of them. He tracked down every single one and he couldn't get the creepers back. And he was like, I don't even need the seven inch. He's like, I just can't die knowing that there's one Jay Church song I haven't heard. He's like, I can't have everything this fucking band put out. And then there's one song I don't get to hear. And uh, I'm happy to report that that since since I wrote about that and, and kind of aired it out, that he was able to procure an MP3 of the Creepers back. I was going to say you got the seven inch. I'm like, oh my gosh! How did you well, I think he that? did. He may have. I think eventually, if I remember right, uh, Joe Steinhardt from Don Giovanni Records either had one or knew someone who did and and was able to arrange getting it to fit i think i think he now does have every record jay church ever was a part of which i don't know i don't know how many people are able to claim that in the world because it's just it's hundreds hundreds of records hundreds i i love the worlds they link as a band like going through and being like oh yeah they did that thing with discount and wind up becoming the kills they did that thing with Watt Tyler, who also weirdly connect to to hard skin and, and, you know, all this sort of stuff, too. And it's just like it feels like they were a band that just, uh, yeah, like, you know, from Beck to all these other worlds just was like, you know, like the, the epitome of the punk band. And let alone being like part of the Bay Area scene and like like he was Blake Schwartz and Bugs roommate and Adam played drums on a lot of his records. And then he had a column in maximum rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, uh, Adam, Adam told me a story about him. Um, because I'm lucky enough that Adam who Adam Fowler turns out is like the nicest person in the entire world. The nicest it's, it's amazing. Shocking, a shockingly nice human being who makes you feel comfortable and, it was actually when I wrote that thing about Jay Church, he reached out to me and was like, thanks, man. Cause like, he's like, I kind of am the guardian of the back catalogs of, of Jawbreaker and Jay Church. And he's like, and Jawbreaker obviously is Jawbreaker. And we're lucky about that. And he's like, but it always breaks my heart that more people don't remember Jay Church because they were good. And like Lance had an impact on a lot of people. And um, he told me, I, I hope it's okay with him that I would tell this story, but he told me that like one thing that made everybody in that sort of Gilman street Bay scene laugh so hard. was it's not going to sound funny at the start, but when the, when the Rodney King riots broke out around America, it was that like 92 or 93 um, starting in LA and, and then kind of spread, I guess, San Francisco, there was some rioting and there was a, uh, a picture that wound up on the front of a newspaper of a guy running out of a radio shack with a whole bunch of remote control cars, like a looter. And everyone in the punk scene who saw it was just like, this is so clearly Lance Han. Like he's one of the most distinctive looking human beings. Like if anybody out there knows what Lance looked like, he's, he's just a very, very unique looking guy. And it's like, he had like a bandana over his face, but everybody was just sitting there like, Lance, like you like stealing remote control cars and like but if you ever read the essay right for MRR and on you know on, on in his newsletter it's like the guy was not a fan of capitalism and yeah. like really vocal about that in in a big way and he was like oh yeah no like if i can 
if if people are kicking down doors of corporate entities, like, yeah, no, it fits my ethos. And the funny part though is Adam told me that like uh he didn't realize that uh none of the remote control cars had their remote controls with them from whatever display he stole them from so he just stole a bunch of useless toy cars and didn't even have the pleasure of of using them i think that i may have butchered it and adam please forgive me if you didn't want that one aired out and if i got the details wrong but it makes me laugh so hard oh that's awesome just him getting caught up in a riot and being like fuck it what can i i guess i'll take these fucking cars man like the dumbest thing you could ever steal uh, but that was like definitely the that sort of crime think 90s like yeah like you know i'm gonna use phone dialers like as long as it's a big corporation yeah yeah fuck them steal whatever you can like kinko's photocopy scams oh, that's what i did i put out two issues of a zine in high school and i i had a friend who worked there who floated me hundreds of dollars in gift cards and i was like i'll steal from kinko's <laughs> yeah care that's what it was all it was all about like using like any means necessary to kind of like you know get from corporations like you know like uh hacking and and trading software and all this kind of stuff that now is completely impossible but back then punks did it yeah although i tell you i once had somebody uh kind of um sort of like bust on me and give me like make fun of me a little bit because they realized that i pay for music and they're like dude come on like it's all out there and i was like no that's artists that's not corporations like what are you talking about what are you talking about like i i'm lucky enough that i i make a living like yeah i'm gonna give money to artists i'm not gonna gonna, come on well it's just so weird because the one thing that in this tech world that there's no room for is is humans and the idea that like there are these human creatives out there that are creating these things it's like no 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 like it, it doesn't matter what you're doing anymore it's just like this piece of content and you know like i i feel lucky as a musician because there still is that that yearning from a large segment of music fans to like support the people they're they're getting stuff from but like you look at you look at careers in entertainment that have a lot less social capital, like actors and porn films, you know, like how much are these yeah. people being fucked over by the tech world now? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and uh, even, even in podcasting, which I'm sure you've read about, like some of the companies are managing to join the entertainment unions now. And I find that very cool to see like, yeah. Oh, people are starting to, look for some protection and and uh not get totally backed into corners and taken advantage of in the way that that entertainers often do and and i hope that keeps happening because it's just so easy to be taken advantage of and and they will do it in a heartbeat i really feel like this podcast is just so far out of you know, obviously you're a very successful podcaster, but like, I feel like my podcast is so far out of the world of like podcasts that it's just like, yeah, like, you, like, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, there are people that like broadcast these things. There are networks and stuff for these sorts of things now. Like, I still feel like I'm like, 
you know, trying to put this together on a, on a Kinko scam, you know, or something. Yeah. Like, even with the big name attached to the sponsorship, believe me, it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot more, uh, you know, duct tape together than it looks from the outside. And I mean, you and I both started enough years back that we were still in that, you know, still in that phase of like, yeah, no, you can just have an idea, buy some mics, put it out there. People might find it. And now, I mean, Spotify is buying up tons of podcasts. Earwolf is part of Stitcher, and that's where my podcast is. And they just got bought out by SiriusXM for many, many, many millions of dollars. And you look at that and you go, okay, that's cool. And this medium is leveling up in a way that's unbelievable, but it's also very corporate now. And maybe it's time to think about, you know, is there any way that this could count towards my health insurance and my pension, like my acting jobs do like, yeah, like it's a whole new thing that there aren't any rules for. And we might need to, as artists really draw some lines and team up and say, no, like much like actors did back in the studio system. Like we got to team up and say, you don't get to spend $50 million buying out a company and not adjust what that means for the artists too. It's, it's not okay. Well, like as a musician, you know, I think the way we get paid for digital stuff is, is ridiculous. Right. But as a podcaster, it's criminal because we don't get like, you know, like, and I, I don't mind providing this thing for free. I love it, you know, but it's a lot of work, you know, you do, you know what it's like. It's a Mm -hmm. lot of fucking work to do this shit. And the reality is, is like, I am generating capital for the people that, put my podcast up for people to listen to and like the fact that spotify doesn't pay us like a musician royalty it seems kind of fucked up to me like the fact that we don't get like do they not pay anything for their podcasts no i don't get anything from spotify or any of these people that crazy because like i'm doing the same thing for them that my band's doing you know like absolutely but but i'm doing a lot more consistently like i'm putting out two or three a week now you know like it's it's just crazy to me that like you're you're right like we do need to stand together because we should be getting whatever percentage of a, a percentage of a percentage that you know a musician gets for for what we're doing yeah it's uh it's it will never end it will never end right like if if uh some dickhead with millions to spend can can take it out of my pocket he will he yeah. will I, I just think it's like so romantic to look back on the period we've been talking about the nineties where you did have this moment where it did seem viable that there could be an alternative economy set up. And yeah. it, now it's never, now it's never going to happen. Well, I, with, uh, you know, I wonder like, you know, I, I think the cryptocurrency crowd is trying to start that. And that's like interesting enough, although I find it baffling and at times like, I'll like read up on it and be like, what, what are you talking about? Um, but I also, again, like it loops back around. Like, I love that we're talking about this stuff because I, I'm at a point as a comedian where I'm going, I, I think, I think I might be lucky enough to be in a position where I can like build my touring career moving forward outside of the usual venues where comedy happens 
and some of the places that are a little more problematic and be a, a little bit less around some people who I find problematic and maybe, you know, that's one of the nice things about the music scene embracing me is like that whole, the whole DIY, I won't say shadow economy, but sort of like off the grid um, and ethically ethically with different priorities economy like they let me participate in that and that's uh that's a, a huge thing for me that that keeps my head on straight yeah you're like one of the first people that came on from comedy and really kind of like set this tone that there's like this like separate world of punk informed people that have come up through comedy that you know have just kind of like carved their own lane in this thing that's completely outside of these chain comedy clubs and this two drink minimum circuit, like where, you know, these people have like, you know, you Mackayed their own, you know, comedy worlds. Like, you're, and I mean this, when I say these people, I mean, you too. I got to double down on it and get back to it. Cause I, I do think I lost sight of it for a while. Um, I, I, you know, there was, there were stretches of things for me where like, my career finally got going and felt a little out of my control. So it, I sort of needed other people to help because I was so overwhelmed. And then now things are slowing down again, which is, you know, terrifying on some level, but also means, okay, I, I can grab the reins again and I can get back to that and, you know, look to the people I really admire to do it. Like, you know, Kyle Kinane being first and foremost, I think amongst the, the the punk comedians where you go yeah like it's it's doable it's doable you can find venues that are so far off the grid and i actually i i i have new agents now and when i was in between them i i i was working with um brian who's the the front man of nightbirds out of jersey great great former guest uh, too since you've been on the show he is yeah I, I i listen to it actually he's he's great and he he's a good talker man knows how to get a yarn out there um but he you know he also runs a booking company now because just from booking his own stuff so much he he now helps other bands who he's friends with and i was like would you help me and he was like yeah sure and then it was such a pleasant thing that I now have this setup where I'm with like a traditional agency and they'll help me get my acting work, which I need for health insurance and, and writing gigs and all the things I can't get without an agent, unfortunately. And they'll book me for road gigs, like my beautiful anonymous live and, and, and stand up gigs and, and sort of, you know, conjunction with that. And then he and I are having a lot of fun where like, then what happens is it'll, I'll get in touch with him and, you know, I'll be like looking at the emails. I'm like, okay, so the agency has me in Cleveland on Friday and he'll be like, okay, I got this place in Dayton. That's this <laughs> record store that has like a stage in the back that no one really knows about. And they only sell one third of the tickets, but everybody in town knows that if you show up and you buy a record, he'll sell you an extra ticket. And I'm like, it's the best. Let's do that. Like he's booking me. He booked me a, uh, one of my first gigs back is going to be a backyard barbecue in Binghamton, New York. I'm like, yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. Like he's just finding me like all the cool weird stuff that, that the traditional comedy world doesn't even know exists. And I'm like, so blessed to be able to have it both ways. 
but it's so exciting. It's so exciting to be like, yeah, like. And that, and that kind of style of touring, I think keeps you sane. Like that prevents the, the freaking out in the hotel, in the hotel room alone. Like even though it's a nice hotel room, it becomes like kind of a gilded cage at a certain point mentally. Whereas when you're actually out, you know, it forces you to get out of your shell and interact with local people and experience stuff, which, you know, just prevents the the bad thoughts from getting in like you know not to put this on you but this is the stuff i deal with oh same same and uh that it's totally true it's like you play an interesting venue you meet more interesting people like you stay in a i i, I try to avoid you know like the chain hotels and airbnb has, has you know has has some major issues but like I'll like, I remember once I was playing Charleston, South Carolina, which I, I really enjoy that town. And I just went and got an Airbnb where it was like me and my, it was this good setup where it was like pretty cheap, but it had two bedrooms. Like me and my opener could both be there. And like we showed up, but it was one of these Airbnbs where it was like, you didn't have your own place. You're like staying with the guy. <laughs> yeah. And I showed up and the guy just like took one look at me and like, he comes out to give us the keys and show us the place. And he's like, aren't you, you were on the fucking office. Aren't you Dwight's friend on the office? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, what the fuck is going on right now? And I was like, I'm going to doing shows in town. So I'm just going to like stay in your house with you, dude. And then like, we sat up talking all night, like me and this like random bro who's like, is Dwight nice in real life? I'm like, yeah, he's great. He's like one of the nicest people I've ever been around, man. He's like, good. Yeah. I always, I always thought that. I always thought that. Like go avoid the fast food, avoid the chains. And you're, you're describing my nightmare. Like that last thing I want to do is like book somewhere to stay. I'm tired after the show. And all of a sudden I'm in a fucking Punisher's house. Who's asking me. It's true. I didn't learn the the word Punisher uh, in, until I had enough musician friends. And I do, I do get my fair share of them. Uh, and I try to, um, I try to like, I, like everyone, I take a deep breath and be like, Oh, it's cause they like me. That's good. Flattering. But yeah. Well, like, I, I, I don't know if you've fun. come to this. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Oh no, go for it. Go for it. I, I, I've come to a realization that I am a punisher and I was a punisher as a kid. <laughs> That's, but you've converted it into this podcast where you get to talk to your heroes under the, under the auspices of it being its own creative project. And then you get to just nerd out and ask them all the questions you've ever wanted. You turned it into a cool thing. Yeah. I'm the Charles Xavier of Punisher mutants who just have found a way to like mm. channel mm -hmm. my powers into, <laughs> into mm -hmm. something positive. <laughs> Mm -hmm. well said well said <laughs> i really do feel though a kinship with the with the punisher now in a way that uh but you know i still would not want to stay with one <laughs> yeah i mean i that one was like that one was an outlier i was like here we go but he's pretty nice and he gave us some good food because he, he liked us but i just like it like can I, can I stay in a place that feels more local? Can I eat in a place that feels more local? Can I play a venue that, that is, is not a comedy club? Can I, you know, another thing I learned from the, the punk scene is like, all right, let's include a local comic. Like if people are coming out to see me and they're not the usual people in this town who would go to a comedy show, let's get somebody from those local comedy shows so we can see what's happening in their city. Like, keep it local keep it small that's like that's always that's something i lost sight of a little bit and i really am 
excited to get back to it because I think it'll be good for my soul. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, this, Chris, has been amazing for my soul. And anytime you want to come back here and be punished, <laughs> please, please know that uh, Jersey is always welcome here. Thank you. Not everybody says that. So that, that means a lot. And and I got to say, like, we've had, I've had the pleasure where you and I have, like, you know, ran into each other. I think it was at Montreal. Like, we ran yeah, into I, each I, other there. We went out for breakfast with my my. Uh, my cousin who's a huge fan of yours as well and uh it was a, it was a, a very fun day in montreal that day yeah and, and and i just really hope that we have some more random uh run-ins as things get back to normal because it's a real joy and and like i said like i point at like a guy like colt cabana or like there's this juggler comedian named marcus monroe where i'm like oh, i'm friends with this this juggler and i have so much in common and <laughs> And, and I feel like you are one of those people who I, I also feel like, oh, like there's a, a certain spirit to this that I feel a kinship with you on. And, and I hope we get to run into each other again. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to hang out with you in person. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah it'll be a joy. It was, there'll be some weird city where you guys are playing and I'll be bombing across town and then I'll come and cry on your shoulder. Yeah, I want you to get topless and get on my shoulders again. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. I, I would love to just be, was it? Oh my God. Am I blank? Was it, which Scott, was it Boston's who had a guy who was just there to dance? Yeah. The Boston. I'll the be, Boston. I want to, I'll be your, I want to be that guy who just shows up and dances. Uh, just, that would be amazing. <laughs> skank, skank for your entire hour and a half song and never stop. And and if, if people come start booing you, I will come out and brain them with the microphone stand. Yes, yes, yes. It all it all comes full. We'll make it a a great combination of my emo sensitivity and an old school like hardcore matinee show. It'll be the best. Thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Chris will be back for a part three at some point in the future. Hopefully, it won't take uh like five years this time. Hopefully, we'll do it a lot sooner. I know we will do it a lot sooner because. You know, I'm, I'm making a promise to myself right now. So I make that promise, promise that you're going to check out Half My Life on June 1st and check out the record on June 4th and uh, and that. And I will also promise you that later on this week, I will be back for another episode because the fun never stops here at Turned Out a Punk. Coming up later on this week from Welsh Gods, Super Furry Animals. Griff Reese is here on the show next week and, uh, or next episode. And believe me, this is a doozy. This is a great one in celebration of his new book, which is an incredible book, a really fun thing to read. Resist phony encores. And when you see it, you'll know why I said it's a really fun book to read. I'll, I'll talk about that more next week. I'll get into it. Uh, anyway, Griff is here. You will not want to miss this one. An incredible conversation, incredibly thoughtful person. Like really he dropped some, some real, astute points about music and punk and you'll, you'll hear it on the show, but also you get to hear me really, really struggle and, and fail miserably at the pronunciation of a lot of Welsh band names and, and Welsh language words. And yeah, it's, it's embarrassing. So tune in for that. And also Griff is incredible as well. All right. That is it. Remember as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. 
We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. We need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people. God, we just need to just smash fascism, you know, just get involved, get informed, read up on what's going on in this world. Like just read on what's happening in this world. There are things uh, that are, are, are happening every day. Every day. I, I don't go into too many details because I don't want this to ever seem dated when you're listening to it. Because I'm sure whenever you're listening to these episodes, these things are still pertinent and relevant. So read up on what's happening in the world around you. Get informed. Um, donate money if you can to organizations that are doing good work. Donate your time. Volunteer your time. Show up to protests and actions for things you agree with. And, and yeah, just get involved. Smash fascism. Just, just we, we got to do it. Because this isn't political shit. This is not political stuff. This is just human rights. The basic, fundamental human rights that we're talking about right here. Sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they look for those organs, you don't need them. You're dead. Just like, get these things out of me. Well, hopefully you're not dead dead, because they, they need you to be a little bit alive to get those organs out. But anyway, just, just donate them. Just donate them, because it can help. It really can help someone. Give them a new lease on life. Um, and I'm, I'm talking from experience of witnessing that happen. So please. But please also uh, create your own culture. Start a band, start a fanzine in the words of Tony Erba. Um, but do anything. Just write, write, write a story. You don't have to show people. It just can help with your own mental health. Speaking of things that help with your own mental health, I've found that meditation has been helping me. Maybe it'll help you too. What's the worst? Just give it a try. Just give it a try. Uh, and that's it. I guess that's all we have. Um, I will see you on the next episode. Stay safe. I love you. Listen to Oil and Flowers with Buddha Blaze and myself. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. Search for it. And I'll see you next episode. Bye. <laughs>